Welcome to this episode of the AEC Engineering and Technology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping engineering professionals find the tools that fit their needs. Today, I'll be talking with Marcel Poser, CEO and co-founder of Screening Eagle Technologies, about the importance of protecting our built world and the role data and digital transformation play in that process. Before we jump in, a word from today's sponsor, Shingle. Get back in the office now. And sorry, we're not going to have a fully remote policy. You've got to come in. Wait just a second. If you've ever thought, I kind of like working full-time remote. I know what I'm doing. I work independently. All my work is on my computer. Why do I need to drive to the office every day? If only there was some sort of alternative. Surprise, you're going to want to know about a new technology company called Shingle. Are you an engineer that has an interest in entrepreneurship? Have you ever thought about stepping out on your own as an engineer or making some additional income with your engineering skills? Are you tired of moving and uprooting your life for a new job or battling an unnecessary commute? Would you like to be an engineer on your own terms? Shingle is an online marketplace where PEs can find and remotely engage with AE firms in the Shingle network that need their services as a consultant. The platform is specifically built for PEs and CAD professionals in architecture and engineering that want to move in the direction of entrepreneurship, work as much as they want, and have the freedom to work where they choose. Shingle wants the consultants to succeed and provides resources to get their companies up and running quickly. Get started on your road to entrepreneurship and engineering by going to shingleit.com. Again, that's shingleit.com and join the community today. Shingle, we work differently. All right, welcome. It's now time for our conversation of the week with Marcel Poser, CEO and co-founder of Screening Eagle Technologies. Marcel, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you on. Hey, Nick. How are you? Excellent, as always, when we're we're recording another episode of AEC Tech here. So a pleasure to uh, get together with you. And I guess we'll start, Marcel. What can you tell our listeners about yourself and what you do on a daily basis? So I'm a civil engineer by training. Been educated both in Switzerland and in the in, in the U.S. in uh, in Austin, Texas. You no, know, passionate about the build world, passionate about the technology. Was fortunate enough that over the last 20 years, I could do different things from construction over design, over gaming companies, over media. And in the last couple of years, really been heads down together with the team to build Screening Eagle Technologies, which is really kind of a software first, technology first proposition to the build world and uh, pieces of technologies and solution that really help to protect, to inspect and maintain all the build world around us. Wonderful. And it's great to have that perspective, right? As somebody who's come from, you know, a number of different industries and is, you know, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, right? An international traveler, not necessarily based in the US, right? So great to have that different perspective here on the show. So then Marcel, can you tell us a little bit more about why you think it's important that the built world be protected? If you look at the built world all around us, we're using it every day, being it roads, trains, Maybe trains not that popular in the U.S., but in the rest of the world. But, uh, you know, airports, buildings, bridges, tunnels. There is no life as we know it without the built environment or without the built world around us. 
And if you look at the, the value of the built world, we're talking order of magnitude 500 trillion US dollars. That's the value of all the buildings, tunnel bridges around the world. And that's 10x the value of all the stock exchange listed companies all around the world. So it's the biggest asset class in the world. And uh, without the built world, as I mentioned, there is no society as we know it. Uh, it's important for the people. It's important for the economy. And as maybe we can talk as well a little bit later, it's also a very important piece for a sustainable future of humanity. And that's what we are passionate about, uh, to protect that build world. I think the society deserves safety of the build world. We don't want to see failures of bridges and failures of buildings. Uh, the society, the people deserve quality build world. Uh, we want roads that functions, bridges that are, you know, without potholes and missing handrails and, and, and all these things. We want buildings without leakages and so on and so forth. So quality of the built world is the other important piece. And, and as mentioned, sustainability as a whole and longevity of the built world is, is a very, very essential piece for humanity and, and for all of us. Most people, if you talk to them, right, you know, us being in the civil engineering profession, we're well aware of the presence of the built world, right? But you talk to people who go over bridges or use parking garages, right? They just take for granted what's under their feet. But that's the way it should be. They shouldn't have to think twice of is a piece of concrete going to spall and, you know, hit me in the head, right? That's something that should not even be considered. The safety really should be taken for granted. And Marcel, you did touch on an interesting piece, sustainability. Could you talk a little bit about what role climate change plays in infrastructure facilities? Look, I think there's two elements to it. On one hand, climate change puts additional stress on the built world and on infrastructure and on buildings. I mean, heat waves, uh, cold waves, hurricanes, maybe forces and uh, you know environmental impacts the structures have not been designed for. I think this is one piece that we're seeing, which leads, uh, again, to more stress, maybe faster aging of structures. I think that's one part of the equation. The other part of the equation is the built world is the biggest CO2 polluter. The built world uh, contributes roughly 40% of global carbon emissions, followed by probably industrial with maybe 30%, transportation 20%. So all of transportation globally is only half of what the built world contributes. And then there's probably a 10% of other smaller pieces. So 40% is built world. And, and if you look at built world, there's two elements to it. One is so-called operational carbon. So that's basically energy, heating, cooling of structures, which is, you know, on a global scale, 25%. And then 15% is so-called embodied carbon, which is basically all the carbon required from mining materials, producing products, shipping then products to construction site, construction process, erecting a building all the way then to decommissioning a structure. So that's 15% of global carbon emission is that so-called embodied carbon. Especially that embodied carbon is typically something that has been forgotten a little bit. I mean, there was a lot of focus, I would say the last five to 10 years on the operational carbon, you know, greening the energy grids and, uh, you know, light efficient or energy efficient bulbs and uh, air conditioners that are more energy efficient, solar panels on the roof for green energy. But what has been forgotten is really that uh, embodied carbon piece. And uh, really the way to tackle that is to, uh, and this takes me back to one of my first points, longevity of the built world. The longer we can operate structures, 
the smaller the embodied carbon footprint. So if we can operate the building for 80 years instead of 50 years, there is a massive, massive embodied or reduced embodied carbon impact and so on. So there is a change of mindset in many parts of the world where property developers, engineering companies are more and more incentivized to refurbish existing structures and give them a new use without just knocking them down and rebuilding them. And I think this absolutely goes in the right direction. I mean, it's not only true for the built world, obviously. Um, humanity very much went down a path uh, and started to be extremely wasteful. You know, we buy a new phone every year and uh, we buy clothes every six, nine months and uh, new gadgets all the time. I was recently at, at the conference and they said uh, the average lifetime of all produced products is like six months before it's ending up being waste. And unfortunately, over recent years, uh, we had as well a little bit that methodology in, in the built world where we build something, we assume it lasts forever without any maintenance. And then surprise, surprise, 30, 40 years later, it's in their condition and you need to knock it down and rebuilding it. And that's just not sustainable. That's really, it's really an important piece that we look at the built world as something that, that needs longevity. Uh, you can do a little bit of human analogy there. We, we humans all want to live longer. To do that, we live healthy, we do fitness, we get, uh, you know, do the right thing to have a long life. And that's exactly the mindset we need as well for the whole built environment. It's absolutely unsustainable to build for short term and then knock things down. And, you know, especially if you look uh, in Europe, uh, but also in the US, a lot of the structures getting to an age uh, 60, 70, 80, 100 years old, where we need to start thinking and start to take actions that we can infuse, you know, another couple of decades to some of these structures. Because rebuilding everything that we have, in addition to all the new build we have to do because of population growth and whatnot, that will just not allow us to get to a net zero or to a sustainable condition as, as a civilization. So that was kind of the third point, you know, safety, quality, longevity of structures. That's really what's essential for a sustainable future and for a resilient future as well for humanity and for the built world. There has been a lot of talk about the environment and sustainability in, in new design, right? You can see all over platforms like LinkedIn, right? Reducing carbon, both embodied, as you talked about, but more on the operational side. But that's on the new design, right? But we're talking here today about, you know, the maintenance and restoration of existing assets and existing portfolios. And I think where the discussion usually ends is, well, we're doing repairs and maintenance and we're not building new, therefore we're doing our part, right? But there is more to it, as you said. Like we both know, right? The exploding population growth of, of the world and a shortage of the people to actually do what needs to be done to repair and maintain facilities and assets is a problem. Let's talk a little bit about what some of the things that Screening Eagle is doing to help protect the built environment, right? So Digital inspection, digital design has become a huge topic over the past couple of years, right? And you're no stranger to it. So where are Screening Eagle's priorities lying in this conversation of how do we do things better? How do we do things faster? How do we do things safer? Look, I think there are two major direct stakeholders, I would say. One are, you know, the service professionals, inspectors, engineers, service providers. And the challenge there is often to find qualified personnel uh, it's oftentimes easier to drive an Uber in an air-conditioned car and listen to music than crawl around on a construction site or an old building and do inspection work. 
So I think there is the need to make that industry more attractive again to a younger audience, to a younger generation. Then there is the need to connect that industry, so uh, to make experts more efficient, meaning that maybe you have one expert and one expert, and he has 10 field technicians, and because they're digitally and real-time connected, the whole group becomes much more efficient where, uh, you know, the technicians know what to do. And if they come across something special, they can dial in an expert in real time and be efficient in dealing with unforeseen events. So connectivity, collaboration is a very important piece. And then overall, just taking much better care of how the collected data is maintained and managed. We see, unfortunately, way too often that a lot of data is being collected and then gets lost on a USB stick on a hard drive somewhere. And uh, six, 12 months down the road, people look for data. They don't find the data anymore. So data management and creating well-managed data lakes is a very important piece. And this is really sort of our proposition to the whole play, right? The software first, the digital first approach. An iPad first approach, so addressing also the young generation, right? That's something that they use every day, that they can also do that at work. And it's not some old black box with an Nokia screen on it that no young person wants to deal with. But then really a holistic end-to-end data management and data visualization play, which is on one hand intuitive, on the other hand allows you to easily collaborate on on real time and really have a very, very solid uh, data lake and data collection piece uh, where it's very easy to retrieve historical data and and get that data up uh, again as and when needed. So I would say these are uh, sort of our main proposition to the service industry. So make people more productive and more connected. I think you could summarize it on that front with a software first proposition. Then on the other hand, the the other, the most important stakeholder ultimately are the asset owners. They pay all our bills. They pay the bills of the service professionals, of the engineers, and ultimately all our bills. There at the end of the day, the value creation comes by increasing the maintenance ROI, that they know when to spend money where most efficiently. And that again is a data play. Today, very oftentimes asset owners don't know the conditions of their asset. They don't know where the data sits. They don't have any dashboards for decision-making to when and how to deploy capital on, on maintenance. So focusing on maintenance ROI for asset owner, I think is a key piece there, which ultimately increases the value of an asset. You know, an asset that is well-maintained is valued much more than an asset that is not well-maintained. So actually, by you know doing smart maintenance, you create value in the long run. But for this, we need to have a data-driven mindset. We need to provide data to asset owners in a way so that they can take smart decisions. And that's, again, that's a software play. That's a data play. And this is really sort of our focus area. With the end goal, obviously, as mentioned at the beginning, at the end, we need to do all of that for all of us, for all of civilization, to have healthy, a healthy build world, healthy infrastructure, healthy building that are safe, that are of high quality and are there for the long term, right? Absolutely. And, you know, your first comment about the service professionals, right? That's something I've had a number of conversations with individuals and other engineers about where... There are certain tasks, right, where think about how medicine has handled this. And a very wise individual taught me this is the way medicine is handled, right? The delegation of responsibilities, say from a doctor down to a physician's assistant, down to uh, different levels of classification of nurses, right? 
and making best use of the skill sets that you have. So an engineer, for example, doesn't need to be, let's say, dumping photos into a report or always needing to get in CAD to draw plans, right? There are better uses of their time. And when that hierarchy and you know efficiency of tasks is really handled, we both know that digital inspection and remote collaboration have a lot to do with that. Then we're not only making our people more efficient, right? But they have a better say in what they want to do, which ends up, right? Better attention, happier employees, and just a, a better output for the asset owners. And, you know, for the asset owners, it's it's all about education. Like you said, there is a play where, for example, some municipalities or, or cities will require mandate inspections of facades or parking structures or other concrete structures. But with that, if if handled correctly over time, you're spending less dollars on, let's say, maintenance than you would be a full-blown repair had those issues not being taken care of sooner, right? So it's a win-win situation, but a lot of it from both the professional side and their use of technology, and then the asset owners and their use of the output is really about education, right? So like you said, there's a lot of potential out there. It's just making sure people understand and, you know, a lot of it has to do as well with, with the right language that the different stakeholders understand. The asset owner doesn't understand what a defect is, what spalling is, but the asset owner understands money and monetary language, right? And I think that's, you know, education, training, communication, that an engineer can communicate things maybe in a monetary sense to an asset owner and not in numbers of defects and corrosion and spalling, which most asset owners don't know what to do with, right? So I think that's another important piece. I mean, I think we, we saw this with the incident in Miami, for example, where inspection works were done, but maybe the asset owners or the committee handling it didn't pay attention to it or didn't know what to do with it, or, or maybe were reluctant to spend the money with it. But it's always difficult if the pitch to the asset owner is, oh, well, you need to spend money to do something. I think a lot of this really can be turned around and actually you can show someone that spending money actually increases value of your asset, right? Which is a completely different conversation. Then it's an investment into something that creates value, not just an expense, which everyone is shy of doing, right? That's maybe something where the service and, and engineering community needs to beef up their vocabulary to talk more value proposition as well. And uh, that real impact and monetary impact certain measures have respectively, the negative impacts things have if you don't do it, right? So as you say, it's training, it's education, it's communication, that it's absolutely essential to achieve at the end what we all want to achieve is a healthy built world, right? Exactly. And speaking the other party's language, in this case, the asset owners, right? It's critical. And from a monetary side, let's also talk about safety. If you can show, and instead of, right, you've seen them, the traditional engineering 2D reports, right? They serve their purpose, but maybe aren't always the best way to communicate with asset owners what's going on with their structure. And what's really exciting in the kind of the, the digital world we're living in, right, is the advent of 360 photography, 3D models, right, dashboards, better ways to display the findings in a way that makes sense to the asset owner or the end user. So, Marcel, could you talk a little bit more in detail? Like, what role is data playing in protecting the built world? Look, ultimately, it's all a data play. Ultimately, that's what it is. You need uh, data over time in simple terms so that you can uh, detect changes over time so that you can go back in time and make sure, oh, this was always here, but it doesn't get worse. Or, oh, no, this was not here two or three years ago, but it's here now. 
So data is the key piece, but the important piece is there to have consistent data and structured data, right? Just having a lot of data that is unstructured that doesn't take you anywhere. So you need tag data, you need location reference data, you need valuable data and to really make sense of it all. And, and a lot of our products are exactly focused on this, right? Geo-referencing data points to specific points on buildings, on structures, that if you go back, it's not just some photo somewhere where you need to guess where it was been, has been taken, but it's clearly referenced to a point and say, oh, yes, I, I'm looking at the right column and I'm, I'm at the right floor. And I'm looking at the right thing. So uh, data, important, but it needs to be structured data. It needs to be well-tagged data and well-maintained data so that you can really extract value, right? That's ultimately what, what it's all about. And, you know, the good news is there with, with the right digital workflows, you can actually be more productive and collect higher quality data than with an unstructured analog workflow, right? That's really the good news. So you can actually have the best of both worlds. You can be more productive and produce better data at the same time. Obviously that's a change process and that's something uh, humans are oftentimes not particularly good at. We're very good to do what we have always been doing. So a big piece uh, of our work is as well change management and changing how things are are done and should be done and advocating new practices and taking people onto a journey of change on how things have to be done to do things in a sustainable way. So it's not only about technology, but it's also about, uh, you know, educating and, and advocating new ways of doing things. And uh, that's the fun part of the project or of the project of work, if you wish. But oftentimes this is also the hard part of it where people see it, they would need to do it differently, but they're resistant to change because it's, counterintuitive maybe to them to do things differently compared to what they have been doing for 10 or 20 years. And uh, a lot of people fear change. That's true as well. The other piece as well, sometimes change means that the people you talk to, it may impact their work and it may impact their position in an organization. Change is something you need to involve all the stakeholders to be able to implement uh, new procedures, new ways of doing things. So it's really a play of technology, software first, digital collaboration with a good doses of education and change management. I think this is what the industry needs. And we see in in many parts of the world great progress on on what we're doing, uh, authorities changing specification, adapting new ways of doing it. Some regions are faster, some regions are slower, but inevitably it has to happen everywhere because there is simply no other way than paying more attention to maintaining assets and keeping assets healthy. The question is is not if we have to do it, it's just how fast is the change going to happen, right? Like we talked about earlier, it's a technology-first approach because it's a a people-first approach, right? How are we going to make the lives of our engineers and our other stakeholders easier so they can spend more time on what's important to them. And this, the change management piece is always very interesting because like you said, all of us as humans are, are resistant to change in one way or another. But I found that if you can show kind of the roadmap and the steps along the way, right? Like step one isn't this complete digital disruption, right? It's taking your analog process or the old way of doing things, right? And just making it more streamlined, making it more efficient. So then you can spend time on what's important. So great points there, Marcel. 
And let's go back to the discussion about infrastructure, but failure specifically, right? So there's this talk about maintaining infrastructure in the built world, right? And it's kind of this almost binary state to the public, right? Either the thing works or it doesn't. And I think when it doesn't and failures get a lot of attention in the news, this is when this kind of discussion begins to happen. So how does digital transformation help with infrastructure, but failure of infrastructure in particular? I mean, look, you, there's different ways on, on how you could go about it. I mean, if I would say what would be kind of my dream scenario, I think all the built world, all, all of infrastructure, bridges, tunnel, they should have like a TripAdvisor rating. So if you go to a city, you have, oh, all these bridges only have a three-star rating or a two-star rating. and The buildings have different ratings. So I think it needs a lot more visibility with real data points for the population to really start to appreciate things. I mean, if you think about it, it's crazy that we rate every pizza store at every corner. There is no clean and easy to understand rating system of the biggest asset class in the world. If you think about it, it's it's madness, right? That's an area that would be good. Uh, you know, once in a while, there is sort of state of infrastructure reports going out, but it's probably rather the expert audience that are going to read and understand that. So is there a way to communicate to uh, ultimately to the voters in a much clearer way that maybe some states or some cities do a better job than others, which may increase pressure on, on politicians, on authorities to do things in a different way? I think this could be a very interesting play if you think about it. Uh, how can we get the wider population behind understanding state of infrastructure, state of buildings and that things can be done better or things can be done worse, that, that it really depends on leadership. So I think that would be kind of a, you know, a point of arrival for me if, if we were able to achieve that, then I think uh, we would be all in a much better place because all and everything is rated nowadays, but the biggest asset class in the world is not transparently rated and, and it's madness, right? I mean, we mentioned at the beginning all of the built world is 10 times bigger than all publicly listed companies, 10 times bigger. All publicly listed company of research reports, no end. But on the built world, you have no transparency and no clear information that people would understand. So I think that could be an interesting sort of approach or food for thought. Can we make this information more publicly available? Increase the pressure on policymakers, on politicians, on authorities to take actions. You know, some food for thought here to maybe take a little bit of different approach to it, but that would be kind of my dream outcome uh, I don't know, in a couple of years down the road. And for any of our entrepreneurial listeners, right? So think about the, the FHWA here in the United States, right? Assigns different ratings to bridges across the, the country. And I'm not a bridge expert, so this is just kind of my high level overview, right? But if you know you could scrape that information and somehow convert it to a, a star rating, right? You could have a whole database of let's say metrics that are more easily understood by the public rather than what I'd assume are these technical reports meant more by the professionals, right? That's just bridges. Now think about other, you know, parking garages, other concrete structures, facades. We're just now seeing the advent of laws that are requiring inspection, right? But I can see where you're going with this because if all that information is made available publicly, maybe, you know, a family and their children, right, don't want to park in this garage because they see as they turn right on, on Google Maps, hey, that's a one and a half out of five stars. I'm not parking there. And and we see it all the time. We try to educate our clients on on what's best from a, a restoration and, and maintenance standpoint. But hey, getting the public that easily digestible information is uh, definitely a good first step. But 
Marcel, you, you mentioned this need to go and, and make things more easily understood, make, you know, repair, restoration of the built world faster, right? So artificial intelligence, a hot topic, no matter what industry you're in, right? So poises a lot of potential, but I just like to get your opinion. Where do you see the use of artificial intelligence in the built world and what do you think it can do for us long-term in the future? Artificial intelligence, without any doubts, will be playing a more important role in the built world. But for artificial intelligence really to make a difference, you kind of need to get to a 90% plus kind of accuracy play. If you look at at medical, uh, we are at that level now that AI can do image analysis more reliable than a human. The difference there is a little bit, if you look at an X-ray image or an MRI image, that image was taken in a very, very controlled environment of the same type of humans and, and the autonomy of humans are well known. So it is not overly difficult to deliver consistent results. Now, if you look at the build world, you know, the possible configurations of columns and rebars and slabs and paintings and, and so on, it's a much, much more complex play to let AI really shine. We do achieve excellent results if you get very good images. You know, you, you can get to that 90 plus percent accuracy, but oftentimes it fails because the input in terms of images or in terms of scans is poor. Then AI cannot do too much for you. The other challenge, obviously, with AI is you need a lot of contextual information, which we as humans or as engineers pick up very quickly. Okay, that's a column, and that's a column at the basement, and it's in the center, so probably it has the highest load, so that's the most critical one to look at. For an AI or a robot to do this automatically, that's probably still some years out there. We will get there 100%. Like we see in autonomous driving has made a lot of progress, uh, but still also a way to go there. I would say today AI is more an assistant, a tool maybe to make the life a little bit easier. We're not at the point yet that AI replaces uh, the engineer or the experts, but uh, it can be a second pair of eyes. It can help with efficiency and therefore help you to do other things, which maybe the human has to do and the AI cannot do. We do have a, an AI team very focused on, on a number of applications and, and working on big data and working on synthetic data modeling, et cetera, et cetera. But today it is an assistant to an expert and it doesn't replace the expert yet. Will it eventually replace part of the expert world? Yes, I'm 100% sure, like it will with autonomous driving, right? I mean, if you look at the Uber Play, Right now, they need the drivers. Eventually, they will not need the drivers anymore, but they still have served the same customer base. Ten years out, we're going to see some of that in the built world. It is an extremely complex subject uh, because there is no unified design, same designs like we humans. We all have the same bone structure and the heart all sits at the same place for all and every one of us. So MRI and X-ray on, on human images are relatively straightforward to say so. On the build world, it is a bit more complex. It does require more time. It will continue to be a companion to an expert and become a stronger and stronger companion over time until we kind of hit that tipping point where AI can do things really independently and autonomously and provide additional or more valuable information. 
The other thing, obviously, with AI, always to be careful about today, AI in infrastructure is oftentimes a little bit of brute force approach. Yes, you can scan a complete picture and take thousands of pictures and, and, and videographs and have then an AI cranking those images for hours and hours and hours. Not necessarily energy and resource efficient, nor cost efficient. So I think we also need to get to a point where AI is more cost efficient than deploying a human. So a number of challenges ahead. We'll get there. We'll take some time. But uh, until then, um, let's use AI as a companion, as a helping hand where it makes sense and, and keep growing it. Right. Right. Maybe uh, one of the sometimes the slower moving things, right, than construction is law. And in the United States, at least, right, the law still relies on a professional engineering's judgment. Ultimately, they're signing and sealing, right? So as of today, there is no replacing the engineer, nor should there be, because of the way our laws are structured. Behind that AI needs to be an engineer's judgment to say, I've looked, I understand, and the interpretation of the data given to me is correct within reason. And that's where I say where the fears of technology replacing engineering are just they're not anywhere near today. And I don't think they ever should be, right? Because we still rely on human judgment and intuition among a number of things to keep the built world operating as it is. You mentioned a very good point, laws. I mean, we work in other parts of the world where, you know, for drone inspection to get certified, your company needs to have an AI image recognition or defect recognition on images engine that is 80% accurate. Otherwise, you are not going to be certified as a drone inspector, which I think is a, is a quite a progressive and an aggressive way to push technology and uh, making sure companies start to be innovative. But also there, it's the 80% hurdle. So it doesn't replace the human because 80% accuracy still means you need to look through all the images. But for a lot of them, you can say, yep, the AI did it correctly, did it correct. Oh, no, here, it missed something. So it is more a productivity push, if you wish, than a replace the human push. But what I found interesting with that approach is it really pushes engineering firms to deploy technology and be innovative and finding new ways to do things. So laws and regulation can be used in a smart way to push technology and to push new approaches. Oftentimes not appreciated by the industry, but if done in a smart way, it can absolutely be helpful to drive innovation and to drive new thinking in an industry, right? Regardless of, of what you as the individual think of, of technology, right? It'll play out and there's going to be, just like in everything, right? There's going to be proponents, there's going to be opponents. And it's just going to be a very fascinating next number of years to just see what comes of it and, and you know, really how it changes our day to day. But do you have any final words of wisdom for our audience here today. Never be afraid of change. Adopt technology. Live in the future, not in the past. I think this is important for all of us. Enjoy life to the fullest. That's what we work for, right? It's just a, a better world for everyone. And Marcel, what's the best way for our listeners to connect with you, right? We know you're active on LinkedIn. Any other places they can find you? I think LinkedIn is sort of my place to go on social media. I'm not all that big on all the other platforms, so happy to connect with anyone on LinkedIn. Uh, I think that's probably the easiest one to reach out. I mean, shoot me a message if you want to connect. Uh, always happy to uh, debate and connect on, on social media, right? Yes, absolutely. 
And if you'd like a good debate with Marcel, just ask him about iOS versus Android. That's always a good one in the comments section. But again, thank you, Marcel. And, and to our listeners, right, we are here to help you. So please reach out to Marcel, reach out to myself or to the great folks here at EMI. And we're going to try to help you in any way we can. But Marcel, again, thank you for your time. And it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Nick. Thanks a lot. Please remember, you can find the show notes for this episode at aectechpodcast.com. There, you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. Until next time, I wish you all the best in all of your engineering and technology endeavors. Thank you.